Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Advent Promise. This year, in celebration of Advent, we will be focusing on some aspect of the giving and fulfillment of God's promise to redeem and restore from the fall and its effects. Today, we're going to be looking at the third part in our series on the Advent Promise, and this is going to be the Advent Promise Endangered. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 49, 1 to 7, as we're continuing kind of this overarching sweep of the story in Scripture that culminates in the coming, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 49, 1 to 7, you can follow along in the, in the handouts that you've got or up on the screen. So hear now the word of the living, faithful God. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. If you think in Scripture, one of the most famous stories is the story of Joseph. Uh, Many people in our country today may not even know the story of Joseph directly, but they've heard of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, that play that has made such a uh, round over and over again. And the reason that story uh, has so captivated people is because of the heights and depths to which it goes. In it, Joseph, who is the the young favored son of his father and receives this beautiful code, and, and, and he's got these dreams coming from God that eventually even his brothers and sisters and his father would, would kind of bow down before him and God was going to exalt him. Well, as you can imagine, his brothers didn't like that dream that he had. And so Joseph finds himself thrown into a well, uh, brought out, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt. He rises up in the house of Potiphar, the man who had bought him, but he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. So he's taken from not only slavery, he's then thrown into a dungeon in prison, and he stays there in the prison, and he seems to be forgotten. And in fact, the story goes on for so long, it becomes almost one-third of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. 
and what happens to him. And it becomes a picture of it appears that everything God had told him was going to happen is not going to come to pass. When he is sitting in the prison and it seems like everything is forgotten and then even then some the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh come and he interprets their dream and you think, well, Joseph's going to be delivered now, but they forget Joseph after everything he does for them and it appears that all is lost. But then God intervenes and he brings Joseph out and not only is Joseph restored out of prison, he becomes second in all of Egypt to Pharaoh and he's used by God to save many people and all of the dreams come to pass. And I bring this story up because Joseph's story is a picture of Israel's own story and your story and mine. And it brings out this pattern that we have seen that not only are God's promises given, but they are often delayed. And in fact, they are delayed so long, they seem to be in danger of not coming to pass at all. And so how do we respond when God's promise seems endangered? That's what we're going to talk about today. So as a reminder to kind of this overarching story, we remember that the promise was given and then delayed. In Genesis 3.15, way back at the beginning of our story, God had given the promise in the midst of the fall. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God there graciously promises that one is going to come, which is what the word Advent deals with, and he's going to come and rescue us from Satan. And amazingly, the rescue is going to come through a human, one who is the offspring of the woman. And actually, in After Hours this week, uh, the little video we put out on Tuesday, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the amazing fact that right there in Genesis, we're told it's going to be the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam, but the seed of the woman that's going to come and rescue us. And so God gives this great promise. But of course, as we saw last week, the promise is not fulfilled quickly. We tend to think that, well, it's given in Genesis 3.15, so by Genesis 4.1 or 2, it ought to be fulfilled, Right? But in fact, it does not happen that way. The promise, the human history continues on. Our sin, in fact, seems to increase. It seems as if the serpent is winning, but God never forgets the promise. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 12, after the Tower of Babel, and God has had to speak a word of judgment upon humanity, God reiterates the promise to Abraham and then later to Isaac and to Jacob, and he keeps saying, look, I've not forgotten, the seed is going to come, and in fact, the seed is gonna come through Abraham, not someone else, and it's gonna come through Isaac, not Ishmael, and it's gonna come through Jacob and his children, not Esau. And so the promise seems to be there. But then, of course, what we deal with in the book of Exodus is for 400 years, they're waiting for the promise to be fulfilled that was given to Abraham. And even the temporal promise that's on the way to the seed coming, the promise of them inheriting the land doesn't seem to be happening. And in fact, they go into slavery. And it's a time that left them discouraged, doubting, and even disobedient. But the fact is, God never forgot his promise. And so the whole story of Israel is a story of God coming and rescuing 
his people. And so he brings them back. And in fact, what they were told to do when Moses is recounting all of this history that I've talked about, which was thousands of years of history, as they are on the edge of the promised land, Moses told them this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. He says, in the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God commanded you? Why has God given us all these rules in the law? Well, here's why in verse 21. Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our forefathers. So notice a couple of things. Moses is saying, you're going to have children who are going to ask you to tell them the story. The same thing happens in Passover where the kids are to ask what had happened. And they were to recount the story from one generation to the next. And this is because rehearsing the story of God's redemptive work forms the faith and fuels the covenant faithfulness of the people of God through good times and bad. God's telling them, when you go into the land, you need to keep telling the story over and over again. Because what's going to form you, what's going to fashion you, and what's going to fuel your covenant obedience is going to be hearing the story again and again and again. That you were in Egypt. All seemed lost, but God had not forgotten. And he brought you out. And notice in verse 23, he brought us out from there to bring us in, to give us the land of promise. And this is the promise he had given to our forefathers. And so God's redemptive work in the Exodus was rooted in the Abrahamic promise, which itself was rooted in the promise back in Genesis 3.15. It's all the same story. And God is saying to Moses, you tell your children that God has not forgotten them. Because when we thought we were forgotten in Egypt, he had not forgotten us, which was the same thing that Abraham had thought, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God has remembered and kept the promise. And what's interesting, of course, is one might think again that when they were entering the promised land, many in Israel thought, well, now the time has come. But in fact, it did not. If you've been reading along and behold the Lamb of God, you, you, you see that the story continues on. They get into the promised land. They don't have a king. They fail. The entire book of Judges is a cycle of they forget the story. They fall into doubt and discouragement and disobedience. Then God has to raise up a deliverer who's kind of a picture of the seed that's been promised. And he delivers them and helps them. And they do well until another generation raises up and they forget the story again. But eventually, years later, God again refines the promise. And he tells them, look, the seed is going to come. This is another three or 400 years after Moses. And he says, it's going to come through David. And he gives a promise to David that reiterates the promise that was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which is a reiteration of the promise all the way back in the garden. He says, David, you're going to have an offspring. The offspring, the seed, is going to come through you. And he's the one who's going to fulfill all the promises. But what happens is God sustains David's descendants for hundreds of years. Amazingly, in that area, in the ancient Near East, many of the countries, the dynasties would only last one or two generations. In fact, when Israel split in half, the northern tribes, the longest dynasty only lasted four generations. But David's family 
It was generation after generation after generation one of David's descendants sat on the throne. But the problem with that was they began to be unfaithful. But God was telling them that the Advent promise became the hope for Messiah. It's another refinement. So this seed that was promised to Eve, which was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which became Israel, so now it's gonna come through David and he's gonna be a ruler and a king, he's gonna be the Messiah and he's gonna rule over the people of God in righteousness. But once again, when that promise is delayed for hundreds of years, and the time from David until the time of Isaiah is about 300 years. So once again, there's this long delay, and over that time, the people of God fall into doubt and discouragement and disobedience, and he's testing and training the people, but what's happening is they are miserably failing. And so they increasingly turn from God and they turn from his way. So all that's the background to what Isaiah is speaking to. Because the people, including David's descendants, who were supposed to be a picture of this seed that was coming, but they sometimes are more wicked than the rest of the people. And so what's going to happen? Well, this is where the Advent promise actually becomes endangered. It's not just a matter of delay. It actually becomes a matter that they are now going to be kicked out of the promised land. They're going to go into what's known as the exile. And for three centuries, the prophets are warning David's sons who are sitting on the throne and saying, if you don't listen, God has warned you, you'll be sent into exile. And by the time of Isaiah, the kingdom's grown so faithless that God says, okay, everything I warned you about all the way back with Moses, some 700 years before, I've been warning you, you haven't listened it's going to happen. And so instead of covenant blessings, you're gonna fall under the covenant curses that you spoke to one another before you even entered the promised land. Instead of dwelling in the promised land, you're gonna be taken captive, you're gonna be carried to a land far away, and in fact, David's descendants will not be sitting on a throne in Jerusalem ruling over the covenant people in the promised land. But the people's response to this is, how can this be? Didn't God give us a promise? Wasn't the promise that was given to Eve and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And isn't that promise given to David? And how can you now say we're going to go into exile? And if you read the prophets, they actually told the prophets, God's not gonna do that. That's not gonna happen. We're his people, we're not gonna be sent into exile. But Isaiah then is gonna to have to speak to them and remind them because oftentimes it appears that God's promise is not gonna be fulfilled and that the covenant blessings will never find rest in our life. But Isaiah tells them it's gonna happen, but know this, God's word never fails. You will go into exile, but just as he brought you out of Egypt, he will bring you back from exile. You will go into exile and it will appear that David's line of kings is going to end, but no, there is one who's going to come and he is gonna sit on the throne forever and ever. So this is the context of our verse today and I want you to notice it's in this midst. You have to picture if you are Israel and you are hearing this, Isaiah is writing this verse for people who are going to live some 150 years after him and they are gonna be in exile and everything seems to be shattered. All of the covenant promises, 
They are no longer in the land. The temple is destroyed and burned. The, the items that were in the temple for the worship of Yahweh are now sitting uh, in the hands of pagans and being used in the, the worship of false gods. And David's, the, one of the last descendants that has sat on the throne has had his eyes put out in front of the king and everything seems shattered and lost. How do you respond to that? That's Isaiah's word in our text today. And if we understand God and his ways, we shouldn't be surprised that God's response is, I renewed the same promise I gave in Genesis 3.15, and in fact, I expand it. I don't shrink the promise, I make it greater. I don't act as if I've forgotten it, I double down on the promise. Now, why do we say this? Notice in Isaiah 49, 1, and then in verse 4, this is part of our text today, it says, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. So he's speaking out to the ends of the earth. Before I was born, the Lord called me. This one, this is in what's known as the servant songs in Isaiah. It's prophesying the one who's gonna come, and he's the seed. It's another aspect of the seed. And he's saying, before I was born, the Lord called me. This isn't something new. This is an old thing. And in verse four, he says, but I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Because it appeared, even though I had been called by God, it looked like all was lost. But notice the response of this servant. Unlike Israel, who discouraged and, got, and doubted and disobeyed, he says, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. So unlike Israel, who greeted the delay, who greeted the difficulty with discouragement, doubt, and disobedience, the servant says, oh no, my reward is with my God. It appears like it's lost. It appears that everything has been shattered, but I know God is faithful. And in fact, what God then promises through the servant is he's going to restore Israel to the covenant blessings. There was some in Israel who got confused and thought because the servant is referred to as Israel that it was about Israel herself. But it's clearly not because the problem is Israel's always been unfaithful. They were never the true son of God. So one's gonna come in Israel's place and the first thing he's gonna do is restore Israel. Notice in verse five, the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. This is Isaiah early on in his ministry, back in Isaiah chapter seven, had given a promise before the people, before the exile was, it's gonna happen before it was guaranteed that the exile was gonna happen, God had spoken and asked the king and said, what sign would you like God to give you? If you and you remember Ahaz said, oh, I don't need a sign, I trust the Lord. And Isaiah says, yeah, you're, you're, you're talking out both sides of your mouth. You don't really trust the Lord because you're leaning on Assyria. But here's, God's gonna give you a sign and the sign is this, a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a child, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so even though Israel turned away and they didn't hear the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, God is still saying, look, I haven't forgotten you, and when you are in exile because you didn't trust the promise, I am still going to send Emmanuel to you, and the first thing he's going to do is he's going to bring you back to me. Because Israel, like Joseph, and like us, Israel seemed to be forgotten 
and forsaken. But the servant, the seed, would act faithfully and he was going to restore them to the covenant blessings. And this is critical for us. As I said, Joseph's story is Israel's story, is your story and mine. And when we seem to be forgotten and we seem to be forsaken, we can know that Jesus will never leave or forsake us and he is always at work to hold us close to our Father. Because what happens is the longer the delay happens, and sometimes it seems like things get even worse and worse, and, and then you think you're receiving the promise, and in fact, even that gets shattered, we are tempted to believe we are forsaken. We are forgotten. And put yourself in the exile's place. How easy would it be to say, we've been telling these stories to one another for a thousand years now. It's been a long time since Abraham. And yes, miraculously, somehow we did come out of Egypt, but we are sitting in Babylon. And there is no hope. This, we are not going to be rescued from this. We had the promised land. We were unfaithful. We were cast out. God has forgotten us. Wouldn't it be easy to do that? And amazingly, if you think about it, it's not as if Judah alone was exiled. Almost every one of the nations around them got exiled at that time by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians. And how many of those faiths, that they all had their own gods, how many of those survived? Anybody know anybody who wor worships Kamosh? Nobody? Amazingly. Why is that? Because all those faiths died. They didn't survive. Because their gods did not come and rescue them. But Yahweh is saying, I have not forgotten. I have not forsaken. I will come and I will rescue you. And in fact, amazingly enough, God says, I know you're in exile. I know it seems that the whole promise is done, but I'm not only going to restore you, I want you to know what I'm actually going to do is the servant, the seed that is gonna come, is going to expand the covenant blessings to all nations. It's not just you I'm going to rescue, I'm actually going to rescue your captors. I'm going to get them and I'm gonna bring them to myself. Not only is the promise not forgotten, I double down, I expand on the promise because I am going to accomplish everything I said. So in verse six he says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's, it's unbelievable that he would even restore Israel. That, that was unthought of. But God says, now that's too small a thing. That's easy. That's not even a challenge. So I'm not only going to do that, what I'm telling you I'm going to do is far beyond that. I am going to restore Israel, but in the process of doing that, you are going to be a light to the nations. The nations are going to come to me because, by the way, when I promised Abraham, remember, it was not just that I would bless Abram. What did I promise to do with that blessing? Through Abram, it's going to go to all the nations. I haven't forgotten that, Israel. You may have forgotten it. You may have had to go to the nations because you were disobedient. I've never forgotten what I promised. And so I will send my salvation 
to all nations. Now, what this means for us, think about this. In dark times, do I tend to look outward or look inward? See, this is the, this is the challenge. I want to look inward when it is dark. I want to retract. I want to kind of turn in on myself. But in dark times when I'm turning inward, trying to preserve the blessings to myself, God says, I want you to look outward and spread the blessing to the nations. And this is so contrary to the way we are. But it's where Israel is at at that moment. Israel is just trying to survive. How are we going to live in Babylon? How are we in any way, shape, or form going to keep who we are? And God says, look, I not only am going to restore you, I not only am going to bring you back, I want you to lift up your eyes, so to speak. I want you to look around. The very people that are conquering and persecuting you now, I've got my eyes set on them, and I'm going to bring them in. So, so far from turning inward and just trying to preserve yourself, I want you to see you are still going to be a channel of blessing to the nations. Our God is a missionary God. And his gaze is always fixed upon drawing the nations to himself. This is the call for us. If you are sitting here over these last couple of weeks and you are saying, I feel discouraged, I doubt what God is going to do, I, I may have even turned towards disobedience. It seems like God's promises have failed for me. The temptation you will face is to turn inward. The temptation I always face is to turn inward, to go into a defensive posture, to set back and say, I'm just gonna try and maintain what I've got. And to do so is the wrong thing. It will never bring what we're looking for. God says at that moment, lift up your eyes, look outward. And if you look through history, that is exactly what has happened in the history of the church. And God says, keep your gaze fixed outward. Not only that, he goes on and he says one more thing in verse 7, which is, when I'm saying that I'm going to be bringing the nations to myself, I want you to know the seed and the servant who's going to come out of you, Israel, who are in exile, who are cast down, who seem to be nothing. He's going to rule over the nations. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. So he's even rejected by Israel, much less everyone else. To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The image of the kings rising up, of course, the king remains seated when you walk into his presence because he's the king. But what he's saying is, no, 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 when I bring this seed, the king is going to get up off the throne because he's going to recognize that one is greater. The princes are going to actually bow down before this one, and they're going to do it because of the Lord. He is not only going to rule over Israel, he's going to rule over all nations. He is going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And so this is an expansion of God's promise. What he's saying is, you think that it's endangered. You think that it's over. It appears David's seed is no longer ruling. What I'm telling you is David's seed is not only ruling over Israel, he's gonna rule over all nations. Everyone will owe him obedience. This is what I'm going to accomplish. And so God's design that the son of Adam would rule over this world and lead it in worship, 
is still on track. Nothing is missing from what was done all the way back in the garden. Now what this means is, is the last thing before we talk about how we apply this. I want you to consider how big a principle this is in the word of God. From the very beginning, with Genesis 3.15, it's often seemed as if the Advent promise was not only delayed, but actually shattered and ended. Think about it. Cain, who Eve thinks is the one that the Lord has brought forth and is going to do it, he not only does not fulfill the promise, what does he become? The first murderer. He kills his brother Abel, who is more righteous than him. But God raises up Seth, through whom the seed will come. The flood comes in Genesis chapter 6, and it almost wipes out humanity. And it looks like there is no hope. It looks like the serpent has won. But Noah finds grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God brings Noah and his family through in the ark. God calls Abram. And the, and the shattering and the sending after the Tower of Babel. He calls Abram and he promises to give him a family. But Abram ages and ages and ages to where he's 100 and Sarah is 90 and there is no hope of the covenant promise being fulfilled but uh, God brings forth Isaac. And then after he brings forth Isaac, Abram is ready to slay Isaac. And the knife is raised, and the covenant seed is so endangered, but the angel of the Lord comes, and he stops Abram's hand, and God provides a lamb in his place. When God gives the promise to Jacob, and Jacob returns to the promised land, there's the scene where Esau comes riding down with his hordes, and it looks like the covenant line will be smashed and killed. They have no defense against Esau. Esau has every reason to punish his wicked brother Jacob, and yet God stays Esau's hand. Jacob is received as a brother rather than as an enemy. When you go down into Egypt, Pharaoh is killing all of the Israelite children. The faith of the people is almost gone, and then out of nowhere, God raises up Moses to deliver the people, to bring them out of Egypt and towards the promised land. When you're in the promised land, we see the promise is given to David, and it goes down, and at one point, Adaliah, who is uh, the queen mother, tries to kill every last one of David's heirs, and in fact, there is one heir left that is hidden from her, Joash, but he is saved and he is placed on the throne and he is kept. The exile seems like it ends everything, but God uses it to cure Israel of idolatry and to prepare the way for Christ. If you go into the New Testament, Jesus comes, but Herod tries to kill Jesus and wipes out all of the children and God has to send Jesus away, but Jesus is protected. Rome tries to crush the church and kill her. And it appears that how can she stand before the might of the Roman Empire? But Rome falls and the church and the gospel survives. And if you go to the Middle Ages, it appears that the gospel is all but extinguished. And God raises up a German monk named Martin Luther and he sets the fire of the gospel throughout Europe and spreads it towards the world. 
The, the gospel today seems to be all but lost in the West, but the church is flourishing and growing at a rate that has never been seen in the history of God's people. The covenant promise may seem to be endangered, but it will never be extinguished because God is faithful. He does not forget, he does not forsake what he has promised that he will do. And he will do it for his people, and he will do it for you, and he will do it for me. So much worse than being delayed. It is at the moment that it appears that all is lost that God delights to come in and say, I never forgot. I remember and I deliver on my promise. And in fact, it is more than you ever dreamed it would be. Israel thought it was just about her. God said, my heart is on the nations and they will all come. God will keep his word of promise. So how do we apply this? What does it mean to us? Well, there's a simple question that comes. It's simple in the asking. It's very hard existentially. And the question is this. Do I feel as, I, as if I've been hidden and abandoned and that all of my labor is in vain? The delay in God's promises and the apparent, the apparent endangering of God's work can leave us feeling abandoned and forsaken. And if we're honest, sometimes you can feel like, God, I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to walk the way you're telling me to walk. I've tried to do what you're telling me to do. And all my labors to love, follow, and serve you and serve others, it's all in vain. It's empty. And the Bible verse that seems to me to be true is vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Everything is in vain. Everything is meaningless. I, I served, but it, it got nothing. Now notice in the text here, this is what the servant was tempted to believe. Notice in verses two to four. It says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow, and then he concealed me in his quiver. So I, I seemed to be ready, I seemed to be launched, but then I was put away. And then notice in verse three, he said, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. So the servant here is telling us, I was prepared by God and then hidden away. I was promised by God, but it seems like, if I look at the circumstances, everything seems to be in vain. Now be honest with yourself. God's people have often struggled with this. Jesus, we're gonna remember, has words from Psalm 22 on his lips on the cross, okay? Because he experiences exactly what we do. David in Psalm 22 tells us, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from the words of my groaning? I cry out by day, you don't listen. I cry out at night and you are far from me. Solomon, 
the great king at the, near the end of his life is writing Ecclesiastes where he's saying it, it all seems meaningless. I have tried everything and it all seems to be in vain. The prophet Jeremiah said, you know, Lord, Lord, you deceived me. You brought me in, you did all of this and, and it all seems in vain. And at one point the Lord says, wow, you're already getting weary and you're just trying to run with men. I'm about to have you run against the horses. How are you gonna handle that, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah is just, he's discouraged. He is struggling. This has been common in the people of God. And so we don't ignore this. We open it up to God because it has been common for the people of God. The image of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord is an image for us that what we do at that moment when we feel this way, God, you prepared me, and then you stuck me in the quiver, and that seems to be the end. It's gonna come to naught. God says you wrestle with him through that. You cry out with him. Notice even the servant, and this is a prophecy of Jesus, says, uh, you know, it, it appears I've, I've labored to no purpose. It appears that my strength is in vain and for nothing. That, that's what seems to be. Now, we're gonna see in just a second where the servant goes. But the servant can even speak this. David can speak, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross, again, speaks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not out of, you know, it'd be nice and religious if I pulled a verse out right now. And so that's the one that it just happened to be. I played a little Bible roulette and I came out with Psalm 22.1. Why did Jesus give that cry on the cross? Because he was being abandoned and forsaken in our place. This has been a constant experience of the people of God. And so if you find yourself in that place, and if you're not now, tuck it away because you will be. It will come. God says we open up and we tell him. What I can assure you is God will not be shocked. He will not say, why, well, it had escaped my notice that you were feeling that way. He is aware. He wants us to draw close to him. Now, the second part of that is we have our hope renewed by God and his spirit because the feeling of abandonment must not be the end. In the Psalms, lamentation always through remembrance ends up returning to praise. Discouragement turns to encouragement. A sense of everything being disoriented turns to a sense of reorientation. And that's what we're called to do. The feeling of abandonment is not the end. So notice what the servant says here in verse four. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet, what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. I know what the circumstances say I know it all appears endangered. I know what I'm feeling right now is discouragement and doubt, but I know my God is faithful, and I know my reward is with him, and though it appears my labor has been in vain, it is not in vain, because God has promised me it will never be in vain. God has not abandoned us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That is his promise in Hebrews 13, 5. And so in Advent, what we focus on is it's a time of renewal and hope. God will come to us. That's historically what he has done in the past. It's what he's gonna do in the second coming, but it's also individually and personally for you and I. You are not forsaken. 
God's promise may appear endangered, but nothing can stop our God from keeping his word. The same one who was faithful in that whole litany I gave you out of scripture and church history is faithful the same way today. His arm has not grown weak. His eye has not grown dim. His ear has not lost its ability to hear your cry. God is faithful and will look to you and I. And so what I'm encouraging us to do is we're kind of going through this huge swath of the story. The reason we're doing it is because the ancient story can be used by the Holy Spirit to rekindle your hope and your joy. God will come to you. I've been encouraged as we were praying before the meeting today. This week as I was reading through that devotional guy, this is like the fifth or sixth time and I've been reading these stories now for 40 years, but I was encouraged. These people are not the great people of history. When I studied history and the history of the world, they were not the people that people talk about. They're not Alexander the Great. They're not Julius Caesar. They're just little people like you and me that the world would forget, but God does not. And he remembers his promise. And he tells them, hey, I never forgot the promise to your forefathers. And I will keep that promise. I will keep my oath. I will accomplish it for you. I encourage you, let the story wash over you. Let it rekindle hope and joy. Let it replace despair and doubt with joy and encouragement and faith. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be coming to the table and Ryan's going to come up and lead us. And I want to encourage you today, let the table feed your hope. God is faithful. Let the table, God working by his spirit at this table, fuel your hope. God will not forsake us. And I want to encourage you that this again is a sacrament. In other words, we're not just doing a little ritual here. The Holy Spirit wants to work and meet you. Do not think you need to leave here today discouraged, feeling like everything is shattered, feeling like you are forsaken. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and to fall and to meet you so that you feed on hope at the table of our Lord. Thank you, Brett. Um, again, I would like to remind you that uh, you do not have to be a member of this church today to participate in communion. However, we do ask that you do uh, accept Jesus Christ into your heart and that you do believe that what we talked about today is actually true. For I received from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks to it, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which I give to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. This is, my, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Now, as we kind of heard today that um, this is a wonderful story that we hear of, of the Lord coming and providing us, and this is a way for us to partake and remember him. And I, I asked, Lord, as we heard today, how that you appeared to be, there appeared to be no hope for Israel as exile loomed over them. During this time, they might have felt abandoned by you. Um, but today, we know that that was not true. 
we are now able to see you, have always, you are always with the Israelites, working to prepare them for the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are no different than those Israelites. We too struggle with feelings of abandonment and the inability to fully trust in you, Lord. But for what? You never leave us, and we have here, as we come to the table, a sacrament that shows us again and again just how much you love us and how you never abandon us. Lord, as we come to the table today, fill us up with hope, love, understanding, and faith in the unity we now have in Jesus Christ. Fill us with the hope that extends from the understanding that we have been united through Christ's death and resurrection. And despite what we might feel or want to believe, you have never abandoned us and you never will. As we get the elements, please hold on to them and, take, and we'll take them together. Let us pray. Lord, as we take the bread this morning, let us confess our sins to you. Help us remember the promises and the provisions you continue to provide to us. Lord, help us see that even though we are broken and sinful, you still love us and, you are, and we are still united to you. Lord, this is not you that abandon, it is not you that abandons us, but instead it is us who fall short and wants to abandon you. Help us confess our shortfalls to you, Lord. Help us repent for the sins we have committed and help us continually put on a new life in you, Lord. Take and eat. Lord, as we drink this cup, remind us that we are no longer have to wonder when you will send your Redeemer. We now live in your new covenant. We now see the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and his blood has forgiven our trespasses. Take and drink. As we leave here today, Lord, we pray that you, that the coming to your table was not just a moment of remembrance. We pray that this table will strengthen us in the union we have with you. We ask that you provide us the ability to strengthen our faith in you, Lord, the knowledge of your providing to your believers in the past. I pray that you also strengthen us in the faith for the promises you have provided to come, and we do not lose strength of them, even if they do not seem to be coming when we expect. And we also have more hope for you in, in Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Let's stand together. And thanks to Ryan for leading us at the table. And uh, as we have the benediction today out of Romans 15, as always, I encourage you to, by faith, reach out and grasp God's blessing uh, and encouragement for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And everyone have a great week. If you would like to, don't forget you can come out front and see what's been going on out here in the lobby and in the parking lot. And see everyone on Christmas Eve. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.